First Peter chapter 4 is where we'll be this morning. We'll look at verses 12 um, through 19. Integrity Church, I want to start by telling you that after being in the ministry for almost 20 years, after studying scripture for that amount of time uh, intently, I have found um, the secret to growing in Christ. You guys want to hear it? Good. The six of you, it's going to be awesome, all right? Um, But I found the secret of growing in Christ. And you're going to be shocked by the answer of what I've seen throughout Scripture, what it means to grow in Christ. It's not a Bible study. It's not a small group. It's not a summer discipleship group. It's not a Bible reading plan. It's not a Bible reading app. Um, It's going to be something that is different. And what I've found in Scripture in regards to growing in Christ, what helps the believer grow is, wait for it, suffering. Suffering. Exciting, huh? Suffering in Scripture is one of the primary ways that God matures believers and causes believers to love him more. And I I think it seems strange, does it not? I could have done a survey this morning and started off by every single one of you, when you walked in the door, we could have handed you a card, and the card would have two questions on it. Question number one, do you want to be a better worshiper of God? And most of you hopefully would say, yes, I want to be a better worshiper of God. But then question number two is, do you want to suffer? Most of you would say, no. However, God allows suffering to be what makes us and causes us to be better worshipers of him. And so so we have this problem, right? We have this struggle. Okay, if I want to mature, I want to grow in Christ and God, one of the primary ways that God does that, now certainly we have the local church, we have the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we have a gospel community around us to help us grow, but one of the primary ways that God is going to grow us is through suffering. And we're taught over and over again by our culture and even some churches to escape suffering. And we often do what we can to escape suffering. We have this trouble of what does it mean then To mature. What does it mean then to grow in Christ? But I want to tell you this morning that we live in a world of sin. We live in a world of sin and we cannot avoid the fact that we're going to suffer. And so it's important that as we suffer, that we understand what it means to suffer well and we understand what it means to suffer for the gospel. And so my goal this morning is to show us, first of all, I want to show us There's two types of suffering. There's general suffering, and then there's suffering for the gospel. And what I want us to do is sort of narrow down, okay, how do we suffer well in general, but also how do we suffer well uh, for the sake of the gospel? Peter wrote 1st and 2nd Peter to encourage believers who were suffering. These believers had gone through tremendous persecution, and these believers aren't just suffering in a general way. Yes, some of them are in poverty, some of them are starving, some of them are homeless, but also they're suffering for the gospel. And Peter is writing them saying, yes, I've seen you suffer well for the gospel, and I want you to continue to suffer well for the gospel because here's the impact that you're making for the kingdom. And so what we're going to do, we'll start with verse 12. This is where we see general suffering. And then verses 13 through 19, we're going to look at suffering well for the gospel. Look at verse 12. He says, Beloved, believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, do not be surprised. At the fiery trial, when it comes upon you to test you, 
although something strange were happening to you. Notice what Peter, notice the language. He says, don't be surprised when you, believer, suffer. Now, that's true in light of the greater context. The greater context is how to suffer well for the gospel. But it's also true in a general sense. In a general sense, we have to know that we're going to suffer. Every human being is going to suffer. But believers, we suffer with a different mindset. We, we suffer knowing that God is sovereign over all. And the sovereignty of God is huge when it comes to suffering. If you don't understand the sovereignty of God, it's hard for you. It's going to be hard for you you to suffer in a biblical way, in a way that uh, glorifies God. So the sovereignty of God is God is in control of all things. God has planned all things out from beginning to end. God has ordained all things. All the good things that happen in your life are a part of God's plan. He's the first cause of everything that is good. And most people would say amen to that. But not only that, God is also sovereign over the bad things in your life. He's the first cause of the good and the bad. He is sovereign over all things. Doesn't mean that he's responsible for evil. Doesn't mean he creates evil, but it means that he's still God and still reigning over the earth. One of the most haunting verses on this idea is actually Isaiah 45, verse 7. He says, God says this, I form light... And create darkness. I make well being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does some of these things. No, all, all of these things. I don't remember growing up in church and have to memorize that verse. See what the prophet says God is the first cause of everything. Now, this seems contrary to the character of God because it is difficult to hear. And in fact, I hear people say, well, God is only in control of the things that are good in your life. But the things that are bad, that's like Satan's department. Satan's in part of, he's like over the bad department and God's in the good department. And they're always trying to war against each other. But let me tell you, like, if God's not in control, even when things are bad is happening, that's not a good situation, right? Because don't we want him in control when things aren't going well? Like, don't we run to him and pray to him and ask him, Lord, help me get through this? Now, how is he going to help you through it if he's not control over it? And simply put, if God is not in control, he's out of control. And if God is out of control, he's no longer God. But when we are facing difficulty, it can seem like God is out of control. It can seem as if God is distant or God is careless. However, that could not be further from the truth because biblically speaking, God takes what is evil and sinful in the world and because he's sovereign, Because he's in control and he's ordained the beginning and the end and God wins in the end, we know that he takes that which is evil and wrong and corrupt in the world And he can still use it to glorify himself. And then one of the benefits of being a believer is he actually can use it for our good and cause it the pain and suffering in our life to bring praise and glory and honor and love and adoration to our God. This is the God that we serve, 
friends. And that is good news. He takes the brokenness. He takes the trials. He takes the pain. He ordains them to happen so that we can learn to trust and love him. And that's one of the great benefits of being a believer. Growing up in the South, man, the, the gospel presentation I would hear is like, okay, this is how bad hell is. Hell's a terrible place. There's wailing and gnashing of teeth. There's fire that keeps getting turned up and turned up. You're away from all your loved ones. You're going to be reminded of the bad things that you're having. So if you want to be a Christian, you got to pray this prayer and get out of hell. And so the, the, the way that I thought, okay, being a believer means escaping hell. That was my understanding. Okay, if I want to escape hell, I got to become a believer. And that was the benefit of being a believer. I've escaped hell. I got a get out of hell free card. But is that the only benefit of being a believer? It's a benefit of being a believer. Yes, we have eternal life with God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. We get to worship Christ in glory forever. Yes, we get to be around other brothers and sisters who've embraced the gospel and lived their life for the gospel. But one of the benefits of being a believer is also the fact that we get to live in the here and now, and we get to love him while we're here on earth. We get to endure this earth, and not only that, but our understanding of what it means to endure changes drastically when we become a believer. Because we actually see that this life is about living for Christ And not only that, when we suffer, the promise to and only for the believer is that God can use our suffering for good. That's not a promise to the non-believer. It's only a promise for the believer. I'll show you Romans 8, verse 18. What does Paul say? He says this, For I consider the suffering of this present time, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This is Paul saying, okay, I'm suffering right now. Paul suffered tremendously throughout the Bible. He was a, a, this, this um, apostle of Jesus Christ who went and spent his life preaching about Jesus. And he's saying, I don't consider this worth, worth comparing to what I have in Christ. And then he goes on in verse 26. He says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For we do, not know, we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and he searches the hearts and knows what, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And then he says this. This is a very familiar verse. He says, And we know that for those who what? Love God. What happens to those who love God? He says that all things work together for the good for those who are called according to his purpose. Paul was a man who tremendously suffered for the gospel, yet he's saying, I'm not overwhelmed by my present suffering. Why? Because he believes in a sovereign God. He is confident that God is in control And God, because he's in control, is going to take what is painful in Paul's life, the suffering in Paul's life, and make it for Paul's good and for God's glory. That's good news, right, church? That's good news. And we should expect that this is a part of 
living the Christian life that we're going to face suffering and difficulty because we live in a sinful world. And so what does Peter say when he opens up this idea to the churches who are suffering? He says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange, something unusual were happening to you. In other words, it's not strange when you suffer. It's not strange when you suffer because you're not in heaven yet. So when you suffer, we have to have the biblical perspective. The biblical perspective is, God, you're still in control. God, I'm going I'm to trust that this is a part of your plan, and God, you're going to use even this suffering to bring joy in my life. And so this is all true when it comes to general suffering. But guess what? There's not only general suffering because we live in a world of sin, but there's also, and pay attention here, there's also suffering that is commanded for the believer. Yes, we're going to suffer for general suffering, but there's also suffering that we're commanded to have as believers. And this is important to understand, and we can only understand it really when we understand the two wills of God. God has a moral will, and God has a sovereign will. We see both in Scripture. The sovereign will is that we just explained God is in control of all things. He ordains everything from beginning to end. We have no idea what the sovereign will of God is. We don't know what is going to happen tomorrow. We don't know when Jesus is going to return. We don't know when we're going to die. We don't know when our, our, um, how many kids we're going to have before we get married. We cannot control. We don't know. You can even say, man, when we get married, we're going to have three boys and one girl. Good luck with that, right? You don't know the sovereign will of God. God has planned that out from the beginning to end. That's God's sovereign will. But not only does he have his sovereign will, so he also has his moral will. His moral will is what is clearly written and taught in Scripture. And his moral will is really, it's just simply obeying God. Here's God's moral will. Here's examples. God's moral will is, he says, do not murder. God morally doesn't want us to kill each other, all right? That's God's moral will. God says, do not commit adultery. God wants husbands and wives to be faithful to each other. It's God's moral will. God says, do not covet. God says, do not miss church on Memorial Day weekend. And y'all got that memo when you showed up. You obeyed his moral will. Congratulations, that's good. Yep, amen. God says, let no, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. That's God's moral will, that we wouldn't gossip, that we wouldn't slander. What's God's moral will? Preach the gospel to every living creature. Make disciples of all nations. That's God's moral will. These are things that we know for sure that he's commanded us to do. And that's how we know God's moral will. And we can be certain what God's will is based on what his moral will is, based on what is written in his word. And so part of God's sovereign will is that you suffer because we live in a fallen world. We know that he's in control. And so when we suffer, we have to know that, man, God, you have this a part of your plan, so I'm trusting you. But there's also a part of God's moral will 
that you suffer for Christ. There's a part of God's commandment for every believer that you suffer for Christ. Look in verse 13. He says, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. For anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin in the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to, here it is, God's will, entrust their souls to be a faithful creator, to a faithful creator while doing good. See how verse 19 ends. He says, those who suffer according to God's will. So the question is, is this God's moral will or is it his sovereign will? I would argue, based on this text, he's saying moral will. He's commanding believers to suffer for the gospel. How do I know that? Well, if you look in chapter 4 again, look in verse 3. Peter is telling these believers to have a, a holy conduct to the world. He's saying, look, believers, don't act like the Gentiles. He says, don't do what the Gentiles do. He says, they living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Don't act like that. That's God's what? Moral will. He's commanding believers to have a certain conduct, to live a certain way. Then if you dip down in verse 7 through 8, what does he say? To the end of all things at hand, this is what he's telling, commanding believers to do. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Verse 8, above all, Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. He's telling believers, I don't want you to live like that. this. I do want you to live like this. And he says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. He's going on into the lifestyle that he wants these believers to have. All of this is God's moral will. And then you go down to verses 12 through 19, and he says, Hey, believer, when you live this way among non-believers, they are going to think that you are flipping crazy. They are going to think that you are weird and strange. They are going to think that you're an alien. Maybe they'll think you're an exile, that you don't belong here. And it's not because we've chosen Christian culture. It's not because we have the fish bumper sticker on the back of our car. It's not because we have our own radio stations and our own movies that we make that are 
not very good sometimes, right? It's not that we have this sec- section of culture that we said, okay, this is a subculture. No, it's actually Christianity is not a subculture. It's actually a counterculture. It's the way that we live our lives, and they say, okay, the way that you lived your life right there, that decision that you made, that, that holiness that you're displaying, that you don't practice these things, but you practice and display these things. You display love and hospitality, and you care for one another. Man, that is so different than the way I've seen it before. That's what he's saying is different. That's what he's saying is what makes the world look at us and say, we're strange. We're aliens. And Peter is making it clear to make a distinction between what is self-inflicted suffering and what is really suffering for the gospel, suffering to obey God. Look at it again at verse 15. He says, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Strange um, categories that he puts them in. Okay, a murderer, a thief, evildoer, or a meddler. Um, the two first categories, uh, murderer and thief, uh, one commentator actually argues that the reason why he puts those up there is because um, the murderer and the thief in those days, that would be, the, one would be, thief would be treason, murder would be murder, and so they would practice the death penalty for those two things. And so if you, pra- if you did those two things in that culture, you would be killed. And so what he's doing is comparing the person who would be martyred for, for doing the wrong thing versus martyred for the gospel. And he's making this contrast. Okay, these people have committed crimes that have led to death. These people, believers, have done something to suffer well for the gospel, and they've died. And he says, Look, don't be the person who dies for the wrong reason, who dies in vain. And then he talks about the evildoer or the meddler. The evildoer obviously is a general phrase to just to talk about this evil in general, but he's also saying the meddler. The meddler is called, some translations call this person the busybody. And this the busybody is a person that's not interested really in the cause of Christ, but rather just staying busy and having the appearance of godliness. It's the activities with impure motives. Jesus describes, uh, tells a story or a parable about a man who's like this, and he actually calls this man proud. Luke 18, verse eight, uh, chapter 10, verse uh, 14, I'll read it. Jesus tells this parable. He says, Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I don't like him already, right? Other men that are extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. God, I, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But then Jesus says, but the tax collector is standing there far off, will not even lift his eyes to heaven. But beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be what? Exalted. You see, it would seem that the Pharisee 
based on all the things that he's done. He's fasted twice a week. He gives his tithes faithfully. It seems that this man's suffering, but he's not. Why? What is he after? He's after his own praise. You know what Peter calls him? A busybody, a meddler. It's just activity with impure motives. What is God interested in? The man who's humble before God, the man who's saying, God, I can't even be in your presence because of my sin and my wickedness. God, I'm asking and pleading for your forgiveness. I'm asking for mercy. I'm asking for grace. I want to be exposed before you, and I want to be humbled before you. That's the heart that God blesses. It's the person who lives his life as a living sacrifice. It's a person who says, I'm unashamed of the gospel. And friends, this is the crux of what Peter is after when he's challenging the church to suffer well for Christ. Notice again the language of the text. We'll read verse 13. He says, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Not about your own praise, it's his glory that's revealed. If you are insulted for your name, nope, he says, the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. Then if you go down to verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Everything here in the text is about us not praising ourselves, but praising the name and honoring the name and making the name of Jesus Christ famous with our lives. And here's my fear in approaching this text. I'm afraid that we will read this and many of you will walk away and think that it's only applied to a few Christians, but not you. You might sit there and think, okay, Peter is talking about suffering Christ, people suffering for Christ, and they live in really difficult circumstances, and I don't live in a difficult circumstance, so suffering for Christ, it doesn't apply to me. Or you might think that suffering for Christ only applies to those who desire to live on a mission field, maybe plant a church in a difficult place, but it doesn't apply to me. I don't want to do that. That might be you this morning. You're just going, I don't know, I don't know how to suffer for Christ in my context, because I'm not going to be one of those people. But I want you to, none of us escape the challenge of verse 19. He says, God's will. It's his moral will. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. In other words, This is God's will for every believer that we live our lives to suffer well for our king. Don't misunderstand me here. Does it mean that all of us are called to be missionaries overseas? It doesn't mean that all of you are called to live in a difficult place or in poverty 
Although we do need gifted and affirm believers to step out of their comforts and go to the unreached places all over the world. And yes, I say emphatically, I want to see people at Integrity Church who are willing to lay aside the American dream and be a champion for the gospel in uttermost parts of the world. That's one of our prayers as elders. We pray for our church. We pray that we would send out many people who would go to the hard places for the gospel. In fact, when when we have our new building, we want a place in the lobby that indicates missionaries that we have sent out, prayed for, supported, and our hope is in the next 10 years. Man, we could fill that map up of people that we've sent out faithfully to go to the unreached places. But here's the thing. Although that is an aspect of suffering for the gospel, That's not all that suffering for the gospel is. Suffering for the gospel is really anything that we do to obey Jesus Christ, especially when it's different than the pattern of the culture that we live in. And this is what Peter is after for the church. So let me just give you some examples of that. Let's talk about for a second, suffering for the gospel and choosing a career. What does our culture teach us about choosing a career? Our culture says, you should work as much as possible. You should make as much money as possible. You should sacrifice your family on the altar of success. You should do whatever you can to get ahead. It's not like anyone ever says this out loud, by the way, but it's what our culture teaches us about choosing a career. But what does Scripture call us to? Scripture says, live your lives as a living sacrifice, which means we choose our careers not on what benefits us, but what furthers the gospel. So when we approach choosing a career, we ask questions like, how does this play into the spiritual health of my family? When we choose a career, we say, how, does this, how can this career be positioned around the gospel? How can I use this career to get my family and, and myself in a healthy church and a gospel community? How can I be effective for the gospel in this career? How can this career lead to me being more generous for the kingdom? That's how suffering, that, that's how choosing a career can, you can suffer for the gospel in the way you choose your career. And here's why it's suffering, because it's weird. It's unusual. No one understands that. Most of the time, people choose a career because they want self-gratification, self-worth. Or maybe it's to prove something to someone. I'm choosing this career to please my parents, to show my friends that I have value. Maybe it's to prove to yourself that you have value. And friends... None of that is lasting or fulfilling. But that's what we do. So suffering for the gospel, maybe we say, okay, it's not about me, it's about Christ. So I'm going to choose a career. It doesn't mean you have to be in vocational ministry, but you're choosing your career based on what can further the gospel. I have seen people do that throughout the years being the pastor of Integrity Church. I've seen People say, man, I have this opportunity. I could make more money if I go to this city. But if I go to this city right here, this would be better spiritually for my family. 
I could promote the gospel. There's a church plant there I could jump in and be a part of. I could serve there faithfully and help this church grow. I've seen people do that throughout the years, and it's awesome. And they'll often get pushback. They'll often get parents going, man, I wish you would do this. This would make more sense. You'd be better off financially. I've seen them make their friends say, man, well, I'm making this amount of money if I did this, but you would make this same if you did this. And they say, no, I'm actually going to move in this direction because it promotes the gospel. And it's an awesome thing when I see that happen. And so that's how, this is what it looks like when we choose our careers based on what furthers the gospel. The other one, what about money? What does our culture teach us about money? Our culture says, spend your money on yourselves. And if you happen to have anything extra, maybe you can give it to someone, only if you want to. But what does Scripture tell us about money? It tells us that Jesus says, where your treasure is, your heart is also. In other words, how we spend our money shows what we value the most. And if we value the gospel, the gospel calls us to live generous lives and to, and to be generous with our money. And again, all of that is opposite of what our culture says. But I've seen believers, even, even with this building, it's been awesome to see people go, okay, man, this is going to be a stretch for my, me and my family. I want to be wise in my finances, but I also want to be generous. I've seen people be generous, and it's awesome. It's awesome to see. It's awesome to see people who are selfless in this church toward other people in our community and love and serve people. I've seen people even in this church who are members here that have been struggling financially and struggling to pay bills, maybe because of sickness. I've seen other believers step in and help out and serve. That's different than the rest of the world. You have career, you have money, you have, what about sex? What does our culture tell us about sex? Our culture just says, it's just sex. Have sex with whoever you want, whenever you want. It's just sex. Pornography, our culture says it's not a big deal. It won't harm you or anyone else. And those are the kind of things our culture teaches us about sex. But what does Scripture say about it? Scripture says that sex is about oneness between a husband and wife. It's supposed to help Married couples see the greatness of God through this gift of intimate love between a husband and wife. So maybe suffering for Christ as a believer when it comes to the issue of sex, maybe it's you don't participate in dirty jokes with your friends and your family and your coworkers. Maybe it's you don't objectify someone. Maybe it's dating couples who decide to remain sexually pure before they get married and fighting for that as they're dating, even while the world is telling them that it's not a big deal. Or maybe it's just doing something like confessing the sin or the addiction to pornography. Maybe it's confessing the sin of lust that can easily entrap us. And most of the time when I talk about this issue, we think, okay, pornography, lust, that's really men's struggles. It's not just men's struggles. It's men and women who struggle with those things. Maybe it's just when it comes to how to be different than the world and sex, maybe suffering through that. Maybe this looks like just standing on biblical principles and what scripture does say about sexuality and marriage. Even when our culture pushbacks, push, gives pushback on biblical foundations of those topics. Friends, the world is peering into the church, and they're looking at us on how we respond to really three different categories, sex, money, 
and power. And if you haven't considered that yet, you should look on the news. Anytime the church fails in one of those three areas, it's always a headline. Anytime a pastor embezzles money or there's some sex scandal or some power struggle in the church, the media grabs it and puts it up front and shows the world, see, they say they're different, but they're actually worse than everybody else. And church, this is where we need to stand humbly before God and say, God, please give us grace and don't allow allow us, Integrity Church, to embarrass the gospel. And when Peter had this letter, this was his heart for the church. So he reminds this church that it's going to be difficult to suffer. And this is what he says in verse 17. He says, for it is is time for judgment to begin in the household of God. It begins with us. What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? He says, judgment comes to the household of God. What is he saying? Well, it's not judgment in a bad way toward the household of God. Why? Because we have the cross of Christ. God no longer looks at us as sinners. If we're in Christ, he looks at us as redeemed because of what Christ has done by sacrificially giving his life for us. And so what does he mean when he says judgment on the household of God? It's actually a quote from Ezekiel chapter 9 and Malachi uh, chapter 3. In both places, God is judging the Israelites by purifying them. He's saying, I'm going to allow you Israelites to go through a season of suffering to make you stronger. And so he's saying the judgment that's coming on the household of God is the suffering that we go through that's going to make us stronger. But what about for the non-believers? Okay, that's the suffering that we face. What about the suffering for the non-believer? Because this is the contrast that he's making. Look in verse 18. And if the righteous is scarcely saved, I'll explain that in a minute, What will become of the ungodly and of the sinner? Now, scarcely saved doesn't mean that the righteous just barely receive salvation. It doesn't mean we barely scrape by. Uh, Scarcely in the Greek actually means with difficulty. And he's saying if the righteous, if we endure this life through suffering with difficulty and we make it, what about the ungodly? What about the unrighteous? What about the unbeliever who lives this life and takes on all the benefits that this world has to offer, but rejects God. He's begging the question of we can live this life and suffer because we know what awaits us is eternity. And he's begging the question also that the non-believer may not suffer and actually will not suffer as we suffer But their punishment, unfortunately, awaits them. In other words, for the world, for the non-believer, this earth right here is heaven. And that's why we have the phrase, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we'll die. This, for the non-believer, this world is as good as it gets. But for the believer, the call is this. You're commanded to suffer now by living your life in obedience to Christ. Suffer now because tomorrow will be a better day. Tomorrow you'll be in, live in eternity with Jesus. For the non-believer, this world is heaven. This is the closest to heaven that the non-believer will get. But for the believer, this world is 
is our hell. This is the closest to hell that we'll get. And so here's a message for us, believer. If this is our hell, and our day, the better day that we have awaits us, why not suffer for Christ now? Why not make a difference for the gospel while we're here? Why not make our career and make it about Jesus? Why not take the gifts and the resources and the money that God has given us to further the kingdom? Why not position where we live and who we hang out with and how we spend our time around the gospel and furthering the gospel? Why not look at scripture and submit to the lordship of Christ and obey Jesus? Because what he's saying, the whole point of all of this is it's worth it. It's worth it to obey Christ. And so my question for you this morning, I just have one question for all of us here. How are you suffering? How are you suffering for Christ? How does your life reflect the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross when he gave his life for us so that we might live? How are we sacrificing so that others might live? and so that we would glorify Christ. That's my hope this morning that we would. God help us. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful and we're humbled.